Please hear now God's word. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, did they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this uh, specific portion of your word, uh, for the prophet Zechariah, the uh, wonderful ways in which he spoke of Christ who is yet to come. And Lord, we now pray that you would uh, grant us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit that we might uh, hear and that we might understand and that we might profit uh, from your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Martin Luther, when he first nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, probably did not think that he was going to spark uh, the Reformation. Uh, And yet he had within those 95 theses many ideas which uh, caused a a stir in the medieval world. Uh, Luther went after things such as indulgences, speaking about how there were no profit to the souls of men and women. But his, his first thesis that he, he posted, he, he notes that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. The entire life of believers ought to be a life of repentance. And we see the, the topic, the theme of repentance stretched forth uh, throughout uh, the, the tapestry of Holy Scripture. It is, it is a central doctrine to the Christian life. Uh, Apart from repentance, uh, someone will not be saved. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ first walked onto the scene in in the the Gospels, he began with a message of repentance. It was of the utmost importance in in his mind. And when Zechariah is addressing the the post-exilic community, when when he comes and is tasked with bringing encouragement and rebuilding to the people of God, he too begins with the subject of repentance. He begins with the subject of repentance. And if you just have read this, uh, heard this passage read, you will see uh, clearly that this passage is calling the people of God to repent and return to him. That's very clear that this passage calls the people of God to repent and return to God. Now, this passage can be divided into uh, three different sections. First, we've got the prophet and his times. Secondly, we have the prophet's command in verses 2 to 3. And then thirdly, we have the prophet's caution in verses 4 through 6. And we'll 
look at each of those and seek to apply this uh, to our lives. So first, the prophet and his times. We read in verse 1, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. Uh, as I said, uh, as we begin our study of Zechariah, and you've probably heard before that Zechariah is uh, one of the minor prophets. And we have this uh, division that we typically use, uh, that there are the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are, are the big ones, such as uh, the prophet Isaiah with 66 chapters. Now, although Zechariah is a minor prophet, it's, it's a lengthy minor prophet. It's 14 chapters of prophecy compared to some of the other minor prophets, such as Obadiah, where there's, only, there, there's not even one chapter, it's just verses. And this has been uh, called by some one of the more difficult uh, prophets to understand. And the reason for that is because it is filled with uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery. So the same type of imagery that you have in the book of Daniel or in the book of Revelation, where uh, spiritual truths are being put forth uh, under, the, under the imagery of symbolism. And so it's a difficult book, uh, but it is a part of the canon, it is a part of the Word of God, and it is profitable for us and we want to understand what the prophet uh, says to us. Now, Zechariah was uh, born into a priestly family. We read in the book of Nehemiah that uh, he was a, a part of the group that came back from exile, back from uh, Babylonian exile and came back to the land. And so Zechariah was likely born in the land of Babylon. And as I'm just thinking about this particular prophet, I I can, I can see him growing up in Babylon with his mother and his father, uh, part of the priestly family, where they were teaching him about the wonderful promises that God had made to their forefathers. The wonderful promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The wonderful uh, deliverance that took place under Moses and, and about how the prophets who were preaching during the exilic period, they, they painted a very bright future for the people of God. That the exile was not the end, but there would be uh, more to come. And Zechariah and all of the uh, exilic community would have been very excited to return back home, back to the land of, of Judah, back to the city of Jerusalem. But when the, when the people returned home, they would have been a little bit disappointed because uh, their homeland did not look exactly like they remember it, remembered it. The temple was lying in ruins. Uh, many of their houses would have been destroyed. It would have not looked the same way that they remembered in it. It caused me to think about uh, John Patton's autobiography. Now, John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, to the cannibals there. And he, he writes in the beginning of his biography how he, he grew up in, in a small rural village over in Scotland. There were beautiful thatched uh, houses. And he has very good memories of, of growing up in, in his hometown. And he talks about how he went back to that same hometown about 60 years later to go and see what his hometown looked like. And the home where he grew up, the, the home where he had his earliest childhood memories, it was entirely missing. It was gone. It had been demolished. 
And uh, he and his younger brother looked around to try to see if they could even find uh, the foundation stones. And I I can't help but think that that would be a little bit uh, discouraging. It would be a bit sad to return uh, to somewhere where you had very good memories and it was utterly destroyed. In the same way, it would have been a bit disappointing to return back to Jerusalem. But God's people knew that they had many great and wonderful promises from God. That those things seemed to be hopeless at the moment. Uh, God had things in store for them. God had things in store for them. And to round out the prophet as times, uh, Zechariah is prophesying in about 520 B.C., and he's a contemporary with the prophet Haggai. And if you've ever studied the book of Haggai, you know that Haggai is primarily concerned with charging the people to rebuild the temple of God. He wants the people to uh, put the work of God first. And he tells them that until they rebuild the temple of God, until they put the work of God first, they can't expect the blessing of God upon their lives. And likewise, Uh, If the prophet Haggai is calling the people of God to rebuild the temple of God, the prophet Zechariah is seeking to rebuild the people of God, that he would rebuild the people of God. So with that, let's turn to the prophet's command in verses 2 through 3. In verse 2, the prophet tells us something about God. It says that God was very angry with your fathers. And if you study it in the Hebrew, it's very clear. It says that God was angry with your fathers with anger. He was extremely angry with your fathers. He was furious with your fathers. Why is this? Why was God so angry with the previous generations? Well, if you remember your biblical history, the people of God, the the nation of Israel, had a bit of a a checkered past when it came to their relationship with God. From the very beginning, when they came out of Egypt, they came out of Egypt and they immediately set up shop and decided that they were going to fashion a golden calf and worship that as if it had brought them out of the land of Egypt to the land of slavery. The period of the judges... God's people go through cycle over and over again where they they slip into idolatry, they fall into idolatry, and then they pray that God would raise up a deliverer, a judge who would uh, bring them out from under bondage. David and Solomon, under their reign, the the kingdom of God really flourished where the the kingdom of Israel reached a a high point where David was a a man of war and yet it was his son Solomon who built the temple and there was widespread peace and prosperity. Unfortunately, even with Solomon, towards the end of his life, his wives led him away into idolatry. And then it was under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, where the kingdom of uh, Israel and the, the people of God split so that you had the northern tribes and you had the, north, or the southern tribes. Up north you had Israel, down south you had Judah. And things continued to get worse and worse. Uh, Jeroboam is famous for setting up two golden calves in, in Israel so that he led pe- the people of God into idolatry. And eventually in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom would be led off into exile, into Assyria. And while the the southern kingdom was able to hang on for a little bit longer, they too 
refuse to hear the words of the prophets. They too refused to turn back. They too refused uh, to give up their rampant idolatry, their rampant disobedience. And so God's people spent the better part of 70 years in exile for their sin. Now wonderfully, with the decree of Cyrus, God's people are coming back. They are coming back into the land. And as I said, Haggai wants to spurn the people forward to rebuild the temple. Zechariah is primarily concerned with the rebuilding of the people of God. But as Zechariah begins his prophecy, which is full of many words of encouragement, as we will see as the weeks go on, he wants the people of God to know that there will be no blessings for them apart from repentance. The pathway towards blessings is paved with repentance. And there must be a total devotion to the Lord. There must be a thoroughgoing repentance. When the, when the people returned, they began to build their own houses. They began to build their own paneled houses while the house of the Lord laid in ruins. And while Zechariah does not exactly offer specifics about what the people are to repent of, we certainly don't think that they had returned just to engage in idolatry and Baalism once more. But it seems that there needs to be a thoroughgoing repentance, that their whole life must be marked by repentance. As believers today, if we've spent any time at all in in self-examination, we we know that we too are are a mixed bag. And perhaps by God's grace, we have been able to mortify sin in our life. But the the mature Christian, what they do is two, two things happen. One is they continue on in their sanctification. As they continue on pressing on in holiness, they, they see that it seems like there's no bottom to their sin. The, the more that they grow in their knowledge of God and His Word, the more that they realize the depths of their sin. But wonderfully, at the same time, they grow in their knowledge of just what a wonderful Redeemer they have in Christ. And so this side of eternity, it is, it is a constant battle. And as uh, the Puritan theologian John Owen has famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And as we grow in our, our knowledge of God's word, we understand that it's, it's more than we just we do wrong things, but we have wrong desires. We have wrong motivations. We have, we have wrong thoughts. And all of this must be brought before God in repentance. We must turn away from the sin and turn to God. The prophet offers this wonderful promise. Return to God and He will return to you. In the New Testament, we have a similar promise from the author James, where he says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And we know that if we are in Christ through faith in Him and the power of His Spirit, we have the ability to fight with sin and to put it to death. That is something that has been granted to us in our union with Christ. So third and finally, let's look at the prophet's caution in verses 4 through 6. He starts in verse 4, Do not be like your fathers. To whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways 
and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Now notice in verse 5, the prophet offers two questions. Two questions, two rhetorical questions. The first would be your father's. Where are they? And as the post-exilic community thinks about that, they would have to confess the previous generations, they've all, they've all died. They all died according to the word of the Lord. They died because they would not give up their sin. And if they really thought about it, they would have to conclude that their fathers have, and the previous generation, they've died in maybe one of three locations. Perhaps they died in the promised land when the Babylonians came and, and besieged the city. Siege warfare in the ancient world was, was not a pretty thing. There could be starvation. There would be uh, just terrible sickness. Even, even cannibalism. If you read through the, the book of Lamentations, you get a, a very bleak picture of what it was like to go through the destruction of Jerusalem. So they could have died there. They could have died even as they were being exiled. It was a long trip to make it all the way over to Babylon. And third and finally, they could have died even in Babylon. Away from the promised land. Away from the temple of the Lord. In a foreign and strange land. And why? Because they refused to repent. They did not take seriously the word of God. And the prophets, do they live forever? No, the prophets have also died. The very prophets who spoke the word of the Lord also died. And what does this tell us? That Zechariah is highlighting just the, the fleeting nature of life. That as the prophet Isaiah says, all, all flesh is as grass. But notice he goes on. The, the words which he commanded, the words which the prophet, prophets commanded, they overtook the fathers. This is a, a term that's often used in the context of, of hunting. If you're hunting down prey, it's overtaking. There's no way to escape it. There's no way to run away. There's no way to escape the Word of God. And Zechariah is pointing out that there's a, a fleeting nature to human existence, and yet the Word of God is rock solid. It is firm, both for blessing and for cursing. And so what is he cautioning this returned community to do? He wants to make crystal clear the point. Do not repeat what the previous generation did. Do not turn your eyes away from the Word of God. Do not think that you're going to be able to escape. Do not think that you're going to be able to get away from the threatenings of God against sin. There is no way you can do it. Don't make the same mistake. This previous Christmas break when Anna and I were up in Chicago visiting our family, uh, one of my family members received a, a very interesting Christmas gift. It was a, uh, a cookbook that was entirely devoted to different types of breads. And apparently it's, it's a cookbook that allows you to make a bunch of breads that are on some, some baking show that, uh, that my, my parents watch. And um, 
And so this, this person received their, their cookbook, and, and as soon as they, they got it, what they wanted to do was, was start making some breads. And so they, they flipped it open to the easiest one that they could make, and they spent hours uh, putting the ingredients together, baking it, uh, carefully arranging everything. And eventually it was finally time for us to, to dive into the bread as a family. And we cut off different pieces, we put it on everybody's plates, and we bit into it, and something was not right. It was extremely salty, far too salty. And so we, we opened up the, the recipe, and we looked at it, and we said, huh, 60 grams of salt for this loaf of bread. That doesn't sound right. And sure enough, we, we looked it up online, and other people had discovered the error. Instead of 60 grams of salt, it called for six. And so what did we do? Well, we quick made a note in, in the recipe because we, we never want to make that mistake again. But it would be the absolute epitome of foolishness to say, yeah, I know that loaf of bread turned out bad, but you know what? Let's just do it again. Maybe it was a fluke. Maybe if we try it again, it'll, it'll taste better. No, you don't do that. And Zechariah is saying, whatever you do, do not repeat the mistakes of the fathers. Don't go down that road. It's not worth it. It's utter foolishness. Utter foolishness. Zechariah puts before the community the fact that unrepentance is the pathway to destruction and death. And so at this point, let's, let's unpack a little bit further the, the topic of repentance. What is it? How do we know that we have repented? Well, true repentance involves a, a change of the entire person. It involves a, a change of the entire person. You're turning away from sin and you're turning to God. And you're turning to God because you know that you have mercy from God because of Jesus Christ. However, there's also false repentance as well as true repentance. Uh, the Puritans also often say that anytime you have true coin, there's always uh, counterfeit money. Now, false repentance is motiv motivated by selfishness. False repentance is not at all concerned that you have offended a holy God. It's, it's concerned that your sin has made life uncomfortable. It's made life inconvenient. But you're not very concerned if it's hurt other people around you or if it's been offensive to a holy God. But true repentance involves a change in the intellect, change in our, our desires, change in the will, change in our behavior, so that we think about sin the way that God thinks about it. We, we no longer desire sin, but we have an utter disgust for it because God has a disgust for it. We no longer uh, want to do it, and we, we desire instead to, to turn and walk in the law of God. And then finally, we, we prove that we've actually repented by stopping the sin. Without true repentance, there is no one who is, is really a Christian. If you, if you don't repent, if you say that I'm, I'm justified and I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but I don't want anything to do with sanctification, I don't want anything to do with God's law, I don't want to give up my sin, that is a dangerous place. 
and it does not end well. As the prophet Zechariah points out, it leads to death. We need to remember that the, the smallest sin is more, more deadly than we could absolutely imagine. And that at the end of our life, we know we will never regret repenting too much. We will never regret taking sin too, too seriously. And so I'd like to, to issue a, a call to examination, call to self-examination this evening. We know that Christi- different Christians have, have different struggles, so that if you're a, if you're a, you're a younger saint, you're going to have a, a particular set of, of temptations and sin. If you're a more well-seasoned saint, you're also going to have your own set of particular temptations. And I just want to take a moment for you to ask yourself in your own mind, what are your particular temptations? What are your particular sins that you need to be on guard against? What does your conscience often smite you for? And I would encourage you sometime later on this week to to just sit down quietly and in in a prayerful spirit to open up to either Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5 and just read through the Ten Commandments and ask yourself, how are you doing obeying God's laws as revealed in the moral law? And then if you want to uh, really take out the scalpel, I would invite you to just crack open the Westminster Larger Catechism and read through the exposition of the Ten Commandments and just see what it, what it looks like to, one, have, have no other gods. What does it practically look like to keep the Sabbath well? What does it practically look like not to be someone who uh, murders? What does it look like to be a person of, of truth? But you don't want to just stop there and be overwhelmed by your sin, but also know that you have a Savior who has credited His righteousness to you if you are a believer. That as the prophet Isaiah tells us, that the iniquity of of His people was laid upon Him. And so no longer do we have to uh, use the law in order to try to make ourselves right with God, but rather it's it's a pathway of obedience. It's a pathway in order to love love God. And then you ask that by the power of the Spirit you be able to put this sin to death and live under righteousness. The third thing I would caution us to do is to be uh, on guard against the least sin. I believe I've used this illustration before, but it's, it's helpful. Uh, the Puritan Richard Sibbs talks about the Christian's conscience. How if a a conscience is working well, he says it's like a a pond that has just begun begun to freeze over in the wintertime. And so that if you just drop something as light as a pin or a penny upon it, it'll break. That's how when the conscience is functioning well and uh, honed in according to the Word of God, that's good. That it would be sensitive to sin. But he says where you don't want to get is where it it freezes over into just a block of ice where you can drive a wagon over it, where you're completely insensitive to sin. So guard against the least sin. And we know that if we are in Christ, then we are in the position that the 
prodigal son was in. Or when we turn unto God, when we repent of our sin and turn unto God, the Father comes running to us and is delighted to restore fellowship with us. So in conclusion, the the book of Zechariah opens with a call to repentance. Yes, there are many wonderful encouragements that we're going to see in the book of Zechariah, but as a good physician of the soul, he knows that he must start with the cancer of sin. That he must remind the people that apart from repentance and apart from a, a full turning unto God, there's no way forward to blessing. And it's much like the, the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. If you recall the beginning of the De- book of Deuteronomy, it is the, the second generation. Second generation is there upon uh, the cusp of entering into the land and they're given an opportunity to follow after the Lord. In the same way, the second generation given an opportunity to follow after the Lord. And so as we now see that the road forward is repentance, may we with faith in Christ take hold of the promise that we have here. Return unto God, and He will return unto you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have granted us Your Word, that You have granted us faith in Christ and that You have granted us repentance unto life. We pray that we would continue to do so all the days of our life, and that by the power of your Spirit we would seek to put the remaining sin in our life to death, and Lord, that we would follow you in joyful obedience. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.